0: We are going to start by reading our psalm together, then I'll pray, then we'll get into it, into our time of teaching today. All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We're working in, psalm, in the psalms this summer, and today we're in Psalm 38. Uh, each Sunday this summer, we've been unpacking a different psalm. And I just want to give you guys a little bit of a glimpse of what Psalm 38 looks like before we begin teaching from it. It's a, it's a great psalm. So Psalm 38 is where we're going to be. Psalms a a bit takes up the most amount of pages in your Bible, and so if you just open up to the middle, you'll find the book of Psalms, and then get to the big number thirty-eight. All right, all right. So here we go. It goes like this: Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has pressed down on me. There's no soundness in my body because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have flooded over my head. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm bent over and brought very low. All day long I go around in mourning, for my insides are full of burning pain, and there's no soundness in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart races, my strength leaves me, and even the light of my eyes has faded. My loved ones and my friends stand back from my affliction and my relatives stand at a distance. Those who intend to kill me set traps and those who want to harm me threaten to destroy me. They plot treachery all day long. I am like a deaf person I do not hear. I am like a speechless person who does not open his mouth. I am like a man who does not hear and has no arguments in his mouth. For I put my hope in you, Lord. You will answer me, my Lord, my God. For I said, don't let them rejoice over me, those who are arrogant towards me when I stumble. For I'm about to fall and my pain is constantly with me. So I confess my iniquity. I'm anxious because of my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and powerful. Many hate me for no reason. Those who repay evil for good attack me for pursuing good. Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord, my salvation. Pray with me. Father God, uh, thank you for giving us your word, uh, your word that you have sent to us in the scriptures, God. And as we read your word through your King David, God, we just ask you right now what does this mean? this what does all of this intense language mean what was David going through and and what does it mean as the people of God do we experience this too Lord so today as we engage your word I just pray that you would illuminate it for us I pray that you would uh, that you would calm our minds and calm our hearts I pray that you would calm our souls so that we can sit and consider your word together God Lord, without a doubt, this passage brings up many, many, many questions, and Lord, I just pray that, that you would just help us uh, write those down um, and, and, and save them for later so that we can stay in with what your Word's teaching us now. So um, we thank you, uh, we praise you, and we look forward to what you're going to do through your Word. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today and uh, it's really fun to be in the Psalms this summer and here's why. As as Amanda was up here and she was talking, it's really cool to see her her light up about everything that God is doing in her and through her to really reach the the cities that she has been a part of and it almost leads you to ask the question of like, how can I be a part of that too? (laughs) Like, man, that sounds great. Uh, I'd love to be a part of something like that. How can I do that? And that's exactly why we're actually in the Psalms this summer because in the Psalms, what we find are are really uh, the authors of the Psalms. There's a couple dozen of them. Some of them, we don't even know who the authors are, but King David writes most of them. But, But in the Psalms, what we find are the authors are encountering the presence of God which changes their life in the world. They're encountering the presence of God, which is changing their life in the world. And so each week over the past six weeks, we've been examining a different psalm, and we've been saying, how is the psalmist encountering the presence of God uh, that, that has fundamentally shifted how their life looks like in the world? We're engaging God's presence this summer. Because we're doing that because uh, if you weren't here in the beginning of the year, we went through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, there's this huge theme, theological theme throughout the book of Exodus that that is really geared towards God showing up. He shows up to Moses in the burning bush. He just shows up to the Egyptians and and through the plagues. He shows up in some other ways to the Israelites. And it leads to some pretty crazy things. What we see happening when God shows up is, is people find life, And justice is unleashed into the world. And 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 this is such a central theme of the book of Exodus that the book of Exodus actually uh, culminates. The final chapter is when God's presence comes down in the midst of all the Israelites to dwell with them so that they might experience life and put forth justice into the world. That's what God's presence does. So that's the first reason why we're really looking at the Psalms through the lens of presence. The second is... um, If you're anything like me, You hoped to engage and experience uh, God's presence more uh, in the last year and a half than you than you probably did. Uh, I know at the beginning of COVID, I said, "This is great. We're all at home. I'm never going to have more time to uh, pray to God and read my Bible than ever." Yet I found myself praying and reading my Bible less than ever before. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. See, this is a very common experience that the pandemic has put uh, for a variety of reasons, different for different people, of course. There's been a variety of obstacles that have been in our way uh, when it comes to leaning into our relationship with God and communing with him. And so if, uh, if, if communing with God and his presence is so great, like the book of Exodus tells us, like Moses' face started glowing one time after he encountered God's presence. If it's so great, but we have a hard time doing it, where do you go? Go to the book of Psalms. Psalms is the handbook to praying with God, the handbook to relating with God. And so we've been doing that and it's been really fun uh, over the past, uh, this will be the sixth week uh, that we've been leaning into this together. I just wanna give you a quick snapshot overview of what we've done, just so those who are here, you can be like, oh man, we've accomplished a lot. And those uh, who maybe it's your first week or you've missed some, you can go back and give them a listen to. Um, Psalm 139, do you feel alone and helpless? Well, God sees you and he knows you and he's always with you in every circumstance, no matter what, to give you a transforming joy, no matter where you're at. We just need to look to him to find it. Psalm 105, do you feel hopeless? Are you prone to despair? Then practice prayers of Remembrance good things that God has done in our life have to actually be kept alive in our life through remembering them if they're gonna have the, the, the lasting power and life-giving uh, joy that is actually attached to them. Um, and once you do that, it just unleashes a humble confidence in your life. This is what God's done in spite of who I am. He's great and, and I can step forward and, and proclaim huge things about him even though I'm just a mere human. Uh, Psalm 69, do you look around and see only things to complain about? Great. That's how most of Psalms start off, okay? That's how they mostly start off. And it's actually in in the dark things in our lives and in the dark things in our world that God longs to step into those with us even there and use that as a springboard for his presence. Uh, Psalm 20. Do you not really know what to pray for yourself? That's okay. What we learned in Psalm 20 is you can actually just start praying for Jesus, and everything that you, that you know that Jesus wants to be done, you can just start praying for that to be done in your life and in the world. And that's really how his kingdom can begin to come into your life and work into the world. Pray for Jesus. Psalm 22, does God feel distant and are things going very, very poorly? Then praying the, the, the longings of your heart even in those bad times, can actually lead, uh, can lead to God stepping into them in very, very beautiful ways. And so what we've done over the past five weeks, we're going to do it again today, is we, we saw loneliness, helplessness, hopelessness, despair, not knowing where to start, God feeling distant, dismal circumstances, These are all things that that when we actually look at them, we're tempted to think like, oh, these are antithetical to the presence of God. Where where these dark and and strange and awful things are, even like confusions and doubts, God surely isn't there. But what we've actually found is God is is present in the midst of those. In fact, (laughs) We actually see God stepping in and giving life in the hardest parts of life, in the thoughts we never thought he would be. And so that's what the experience of the psalmist has been showing us. And today in Psalm 38, we come to another one of these things that we think is completely antithetical to God's presence, and that's sin, our sin. Here in Psalm 38, we see David talking to God about his sin. As I read it, you were probably like, "Whoop! this is intense. Maybe this is a week that I should have just done online, <laughs> tuned in online. Let's not talk about sin today. But, but this is a, another thing that, that we think, you know, what, in our sin, God surely isn't there. But what we're going to find is the complete opposite. What if God shows up in the midst of our sin to relate with us? What if our sin actually pre- presents us and it presents God with the opportunity to more deeply abide with us that we might encounter his presence in even a more transforming way than if it wasn't there at all? Because in fact, this is the, it's the entire Christian hope. The, the, the Apostle Paul says this in, in Romans chapter five, he says that God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were, Still sinners, or even some translations say, while we were still sinning, God died for us. Christ died for us. Meaning Jesus showed up in the midst of sinful, fallen, dark world to bring it life. John, his disciple, says that Jesus was the true light that came and illuminated a dark world. That's in John chapter 1. You see, Jesus had a reputation for hanging out with who? Sinners. Sinners. So so the, the Christian gospel, the good news, it actually centers on God himself making himself present in the midst of sin and darkness. That's what Christianity is all about. And so when it comes to your sin, God wants to be present in that. He wants to talk with you and relate with you about that. And so if you hear nothing else today, hear that. We're gonna get into the details of this a little bit. And, and I don't want you to get lost in, in the weeds and lose that big point of the Christian life, especially if you're just coming back to church after a long time away, or your friend uh, brought you in today, and you're like, oh man, we're gonna talk about sin? Sheesh, you know, like, if, if you take nothing else away with you, um, just take away this, it doesn't matter what you've done, is what the great Christian hope says then. Uh, God uh, not only can still be present with you, but longs to be present with you, no matter what you've done. God shows up to sinners. That's, that's what the scriptures are all about. That's what he did in Christ. Paul wrote that in Romans 5. Did you, do you know how he knew that? He was on his way to go round up some more Christians and throw them in jail when God appeared up to him. Talk about Christ, God revealing himself to someone who is still sinning. God shows up in the darkness of our sin and gives them, gives all of us forgiveness and mercy, mercy and grace. So... um. Psalm 38 tells us how that works, okay? So Psalm 38 tells us how that works. And and before we get into how God interacts with sin, um, David actually gives us a really good understanding. He he gives us three insights of just how sin works generally that is good to operate from first before we dive into how God works with sin. Okay, so we're gonna go into those. The first one is um, sin oppresses us. So if, if you're a note taker, we're gonna go through sin oppresses us. Uh, Sin isolates us, and then that oppression and that um, isolation actually brings ridicule uh, from other people on us. That's what David's going through here, those three things of sin. And so we're going to start with sin oppressing us. Um, Really bright topic, you know, really bright topic. Uh, No, but this is really part of the gospel, the, the The resurrection is so much more beautiful after we witness the muck that it had to come through, the darkness that it had to break through in order to get there. That's really what this psalm is all about. David's going to go really far down, and you heard this through all the language I read, into sin in order to really show how beautiful his relationship with God actually is in spite of all of it. So so the first thing that comes out is when it comes to oppression, it's in verse 4. He says, for my iniquities, that's a, that's a fancy word for sin, for my sins have flooded over my head. They're a burden too heavy for me to bear. This imagery is one of drowning, drowning. That, that, that Sins are coming on his head like, like strong water and he can't hold up any more. That, that he's being crushed by it. It's pressing down, it's killing him. He Can't hold it up anymore. He's overwhelmed by the effects of sin in his life life. You see, sin or living contrary to how how God has designed us to to live as the created beings that he uh, made us, it eventually oppresses us. Now, this is really important to remember because God doesn't have a list of rules for us to abide by just because he's on some power trip or he's selfish. He's actually providing us with uh, the, the handbook of sorts of this is how I fashioned you to work in the world, so follow it. Anybody not read an owner's manual on something and then broken it? I did this with a drill once, okay? I was taking a drill, and I am not a handyman, but I had to hang something on the wall, and it turns out there was an aluminum or a metal stud, and I just kept on going at this thing. The motor fried. New drill. Fried motor. Okay? I was not using it how it was designed to, and so eventually I pressed it to death. All right? Now... This isn't just a Christian experience with sin as well, though. It's actually a very human one, very human experience. And, and to, to, to cite this, I want to point to a group that maybe you've heard of called AJR. Anybody heard of AJR fans? No, I'm the only AJR fan here. That's okay. Oh, that's there, Claire. I see. Okay. So fun group, poppy group. Me and my wife have been listening to their pop stuff this summer, which has been really fun. Um. Not a full endorsement here. Some of these songs are pretty explicit. Warning, don't listen to them with your kids. Okay? Not a Christian group, okay? But they have a song called Weak. Weak, which is all about the temptation to sin. It's all about wrestling with things that we know will hurt us in the raw in the long run, but we're weak to the temptation because we know the short-term payoff is gonna be so good. It, it, I mean, these, these, this is like a big human felt experience. I mean, there's half a billion listens to this one song on Spotify, okay? So like, this is a human experience. And, and as, as we talk with our non, or we, we don't like to say non-Christian uh, friends here at Sederis, we love to say not yet Christian friends, you know? Because you never know what God might do, okay? But as you talk with your not yet Christian friends and acquaintances, you'll notice that, that they have a, a very real morality, they, they have a justification and reasons for why they live their life a certain way. Even sometimes these seem to mimic a Christian morality. And, and as you ask more questions, it's fun to ask questions kind of more towards, hey, wh- where is this grounded is? Why do you think you shouldn't do that? Or why do you think it's really good to do that? And if you listen really, really well, this is what you'll find. They've gained this awareness through the experience of the oppression of sin. They said, I don't want to do this because I actually experience a oppression in the long term, and so I try to stay away from, from, from this vice or that vice. You see, they're trying to live their, their happiest life, and so often they have a list of sins that they want to stay away from. And you'll find that it's different for different people because sin has different effects here or there on different people. But, but it's there for every single human being the morality of your typical Western not yet Christian is formulated on the oppression of sin generally. These things that the the Bible talks about, they they probably don't have language for that, but typically that's what it's formulated around. So sin oppresses us. That's what what David points to. That's the existential experience of humans everywhere. That hey, when we do some things, we experience long-term oppression. Okay, so oppression. Secondly, sin isolates us. Sin isolates us. That's in verse 10. David really uh, talks about this in in verse 10. Actually, I'll skip down to verse 11. It says, my loved ones and my friends stand back from my affliction, and my relatives stand at a distance. People are seeing David and his sin, and they're standing back. They're they're separate. They're like, whoa. They're standing. The people who love him most. Have You ever heard of this movie called, uh, it's a series of movies called Star Wars? Anybody? Anybody? There's a great example of this in in episode three where where, this is where Anakin Skywalker played by Hayden Christensen, who essentially, he almost ruins episode two and three with his terrible acting, right? So terrible. They're just lucky that Keira Knightley can like act enough for both of them in those movies. Anyways, he's really going towards, uh, in episode three, he's going towards the dark side. He's done some pretty terrible things. His love Padme, of course, played by Keira Knightley. She hears about some of these things. And she confronts him about it. Hey, is, have you done some of these things? And she finds out that it's true. She finds out that these rumors are true. And she says the, just a great line. She says, I don't know you anymore, Anakin. You're breaking my heart. You're going down a path that I can't follow. And he asks, why? And she exclaims back at him, because of what you've done. Because of what you've done even though he'd also just told her that he wants to rule the galaxy as a dictator. She's not saying, I can't go down that path because I don't agree with where you're going. She says, I can't go down that path because of where you've done, of what you've done, and where you've come from already. Because of what you've done. Um, Recently, the mental health field has actually made a a slight shift, um, kind of nodding towards the isolation of sin themselves um, with regards to substance abuse. It's a really subtle and and really, really insightful kind of uh, shift that they've made. They, they're, they're moving away from the term relapse. Have you heard about this? Uh, the, the mental health field is no longer really using the word relapse when someone leaves sobriety to go back to their old, their, their old ways. And, and stay, Instead, now they say that a person is isolating. That person's isolating. It's, it, it's a really keen, keen observation. Sin isolates us. And, and, and the friends and families who are in relationships with individuals who, who struggle with substance abuse and, and are isolating, when you get a glimpse into these family units, what you actually see is the families are taking a step back as well. They're taking a step away as well. It's really a two-way street in terms of the isolating effect of sin. You have, you, sin really makes us step away from other people that we might engage in it. And then as people see it from the outside, they're like, Oh, I'm going to separate myself from that person as well. Sin is incredibly isolating. So David points to how sin oppresses us and it isolates us. But then a, a huge part of this psalm is really all about David's enemies, isn't it? What they've done, uh, and you may have noticed this as I read it, what they've done is they've seen the uh, the oppression that David's experiencing. They, they've witnessed his isolation from even his family and his friends, and then the people who 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 don't like David, his enemies, begin to heap ridicule upon him. They're rejoicing and they're gloating about it. Verse twelve, David tells us, "Those who intend to kill me, they set traps." those who want to harm me. They threaten to destroy me. They plot treachery all the day long. And then if you skip down to verse 16, for I said, don't let them rejoice over me, those who are arrogant towards me, when I stumble. When I stumble. Humans love to see their enemies fall. We love to watch our enemies fall. Uh, it was true then. It's true today. Uh, the, and the It's true of everybody around us who takes issue with our Christian faith. People who take issue with your Christian faith, what they've done is is that they look at you and they've shorted your life. They've shorted your life. They're betting against that, that, that the Christian faith will actually deliver the purpose and the meaning and the joy that you claim it will give you. And they're looking to see us crushed and isolated because of our sin. They long to see it happen. Now, to to be fair, Christians, we we do the same with those who aren't yet Christians. We're looking to see when when sin begins to oppress them and isolate them, but but hopefully our disposition is very different. It's not one of rejoicing, it's one of compassion, where we're able to step into that that moment of of pain and anguish and, and, and ask them a simple question. Have you considered Jesus? Have you considered that this might be the place where you can get purpose and meaning and joy and life? So that, that's a really big difference. And so all of this comes together in David's life, the oppression, the isolation, the ridicule. All of it comes to a head, and it gets to a, a place where David, he cries out to God. Cries out to God. In verse 17, he said, I'm about to fall. My pain is constantly with me. So I confess my iniquity. He cries out to God. I confess it to you, God. I'm anxious because of my sin. And so that's what we have to really see here in this psalm is it's not a psalm that, that's, that, that's teaching us how not to sin. It's not a psalm about not sinning. It's a psalm about what to do when inevitably we do fall short, when we are falling short. And so that's, so that's what we're talking about today. We're not talking about how we can avoid sin. Uh, that's uh, other conversations, other places. We're really talking about, okay, now that, that we can all get on board with, hey, we're falling short in big ways, uh, sometimes, often, What do we do in those times? What do we do with the sin that we have each and every day? This is a a psalm about David running to God to talk about it. And that's hard for us, to run to God to talk about our sin. Why is it hard? Why is it hard? Because we know that sin oppresses, it isolates, and it ridicules. And if you're anything like me, the thought of going to God with it You fear that he might oppress you, isolate from you, have some harsh words to say to you. But we couldn't be more mistaken. We couldn't be more mistaken. He will not crush us. He will not leave us and he will not ridicule us. How do we know? Because of this progression that we see David going through in this psalm. Because even David at the very beginning of the psalm, he has that same fear. You see it in verse one. God, please don't punish me. Please don't. Please don't punish me in your wrath. I don't want to experience it. Even David is going through it. Don't oppress me. Don't isolate me. Don't ridicule me. Let, let's just wipe the slate clean. Let's move on. Let's fix it and move on. And it's clear through David's language that God has already begun to discipline him that a lot of the stuff that he's been experiencing was actually the hand of God to try to force this conversation with David. But where sin hopes to oppress David, God wants to use it as an opportunity to liberate him. Where sin wants to isolate David, God wants to have deeper communion with David. And where sin desires others to ridicule David to the point of despair. When David runs to God, what he's actually going to find is an encouraging presence there to bring him back to life again. How do we see this in Psalm 38? How do we see it? Well, really what's happening here is we have a progression in Psalm 38 that has a whole lot of different, uh, there's four things that David looks up to God. He's complaining a lot, right? This is happening, it hurts. My enemies are after me, it's terrible. But there's four times where he looks up to heaven and he has something to say. He has something to say to say. And it's actually as we look through these statements that David says to God, that we can indirectly infer that, wait, something else is happening, because he starts really scared of God's punishment. But then he comes out on the other side, just asking God not to leave him. Don't leave me, God, is what he says at the end. Now, there's a, there's a heavy thing here, which is perhaps the elephant in the room, that we, we really need to address before I, I want to look at those four statements, which is, um, how, are we sure God's not oppressing here? <laughs> David uses some pretty intense, like, look at verse three, your arrows have sunk into me. Sounds like an oppressing God to me. And in fact, as you go through that stanza, there's a lot of stuff going on that, that David describes as coming from God arrows sinking into me, no soundness in my body, no health in my bones. My wounds are foul and festering. Because of my foolishness, I'm bent over with pain. Like he's throwing up, bent over, brought very low. My insides are burning with pain. I'm faint. David says, this is what God is doing to him. And I'd love to come up here and say, you know what? David's just talking about some psychological stuff that he's experiencing but the scriptures really don't give us that out. I've I read a couple uh, different uh, you know, the, the academics on this, and it's very clear that David is physically suffering. We'd love to look at this and say, this is poetic language about David's psychological wrestle with sin. There are those psychological elements in here. Anxiety, depression, anguish of heart. But clearly there's also a physical element here. What do we do with this? It says that God did this to him, yikes. And in fact, this is the, one of the themes that's present in the, present in the entire Old Testament that makes, makes us a little bit uncomfortable about this Yahweh, isn't it? You see this Yahweh show up and discipline and punish his people. We saw it in Exodus. After they make the golden calf, he causes a plague to come upon them. And he throws some poisonous snakes in their camp. That's what it says in Exodus. <laughs> That makes us really uncomfortable, and then ultimately the Old Testament really concludes with the Israelites have have rebelled against God to the point where he lets them be overthrown by other nations and brought into exile somewhere else. God, uh, in the Old Testament, seems to press his hand down in very physical, tangible ways on his people when they don't listen to him. What do we do with this, God? One, One of the things we can do is we can say, not anymore, God punished uh, sin once and for all on the cross, and so He doesn't do that with Christians today. You see, the, the God of the Old Testament is mean and harsh, but the God of New Testament is full of mercy and, and grace in these regards. But that's hard to square with even the pages of the New Testament as well. Um, this is, here's just a couple quick examples. There are actually many examples. But there's a couple examples where we see God showing up and, and He's disciplining and punishing his people. The first is in First Corinthians, First Corinthians um, I forget what chapter. Is it 11? Yeah, here it is. First um, Corinthians 11. This is uh, Paul. The Corinthian church was a, a church that was super diverse. They had people from all over the, the, the Roman Empire, but then they also had people from, from richest to poorest. And it was pretty clear that they let these social divides actually kind of reign in the church. So richer people were getting priority over the poor. And they were even bringing this into the Lord's Supper, the meal of the Lord's Supper, which seems to actually have been more of a meal uh, than we actually lean into it today. And what was happening was the, the rich people were getting tons of food and tons of wine, and the poor people weren't getting very much at all. In fact, they were leaving hungry is what. Paul says. Like, maybe they're just getting these little cups like you guys, <laughs> that we give to you guys. And just, uh. Okay, but this is what Paul says about that, that circumstance happening. This is what he says God did. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is showing favoritism, will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for death. So here we see God after Jesus, New Testament, first century times showing up. And it even corroborates the words of Jesus himself. Uh, We won't throw this on the screen, but in John chapter five, Jesus healed a man who couldn't walk. And then do you know what he said to him? He said, see, you're well. Don't sin anymore or something worse might happen to you. What? This is the Jesus of mercy and grace. Don't sin anymore or you might get sick and die. Wow. And so unless we take these pages out of the New Testament, which I suggest we don't, uh, the question becomes, are, are you sure that we don't follow a God who actually leans into discipline in very tangible ways? And like I said, when we, re, we need to recast this in forms of discipline, not in this terms of blind punishment. Because here when we start talking about discipline, and David uses this word disciplined, we have an end goal in mind. Now, this doesn't completely solve our problem by any means, of course, but this, the act of discipline that David experiences throughout the course of the psalm is actually that which we see bringing him life. So we, we saw that first step in this four, these four little statements he throws up uh, in the progression already. God, please don't punish me. Don't oppress me. Don't hurt me. He's fearful. But in his next statement, Hail Mary, that he sends up to God, we see him exhaling a little bit. It's in verse nine. Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you kind of relaxing a little bit. He's been talking to God a little bit, and what is his conclusion here? God, you see me. God, you see me, and God, you know me. You see me, and you know me. It's a really beautiful conclusion that, that David, that there's a sense you, as you read it, you kind of feel that David's understanding, okay, God's favorably inclined towards me in some way. Not sure exactly what that looks like, but I went in with my sin. I was scared that he would oppress me, but he sees me and he knows me, which is followed up by this next statement that he throws up to God. It's in verse 15. He concludes, for I hope in you, Lord. I hope in you, Lord. You will answer me, my Lord and my God. Something's changed. We've moved from fear and oppression to God sees me and knows me and I hope in you, God. I hope, I hope in you. He's moved from that. And then finally, it wraps up in verse 19 like this. Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord of my salvation. We've progressed from being fearful, anxious of the presence of God, to God, don't leave me. It's a complete about face. God, I'm anxious to show up into your presence with us. Anybody feel like that when they bring sin to God? I don't, really don't want to talk about this right now, to, oh, just don't leave me. So he's not encountering God's presence as an oppressive, isolating, ridiculing presence. Something else is happening. Don't punish me. You see me. I hope in you. Please don't leave me. Those are, that's David's cry as it progresses throughout this psalm. David has discovered that while God's hand might be, pres- might be heavy upon him, it's not this blind, punishing hand. He found out that it was actually a loving hand of discipline. And while it was definitely not enjoyable to him, he found it to be good. He didn't want it to leave. Don't leave me, God. David brought his sin to God and he encountered God's mercy. I mean, he didn't receive from God what he thought he deserved but it's also God's grace. God's, God takes David's sin and he uses it to mature him, to grow him, to refine him, to make him into something more beautiful than he was beforehand. See, God took the opportunity of David's sin and, and applied the pressure of discipline to transform David and us, all of his people, if we let him, from lumps of coal into diamonds, that, that, that metaphor. It takes pressure to take something that, that doesn't look so beautiful at the beginning, but then transforms into something absolutely beautiful. So God is taking our sin in our lives, he wants to show up into it and use it to grow us, to bring us life, to give us more presence of him. He turned David into a man of sin, into a man that was above reproach eventually. You see, sin wants to shake us and topple us over completely, but if we bring it to God, he'll use it to make us steady than we, steadier than we ever were before. Ever. You see, we have to take a step back and even look at sin generally. Sin didn't surprise God. He's the one that sent it here. That's what Jesus said. He said, I saw Satan flung down to earth out of heaven. God's the one that sent it here. Why? Why? Because Adam and Eve were lumps of coal that he wanted to turn into diamonds. Without sin, we have no story of redemption. Without a story of redemption, we actually can't see God for as glorious as he is. We wouldn't understand that component of God. We wouldn't understand a a God of mercy and of grace and of compassion and slowness to anger now, does this solve the, the, this problem of evil, God? Do you unleash this on the world to make us more beautiful? Absolutely not. There's lots of questions here, and we, we'd love to get together with you and unpack those questions more. Our cohorts unpack them together. In fact, I, I bet you leave this sermon with more questions than you came. <laughs> if you did, that's great. You know, we're so happy. At Sedaris, we're a considering community, which means that as we consider, we actually... Find out when we tip our toes into a pool, we fall in and we're like, oh shoot, there's a whole lot of things to nail down here. But we're not gonna be anti-intellectual about all this. We need to lean into this with one another. And the discipline of God is a big topic to lean into with one another. To consider how God moves us from coal to diamonds because it means that sin isn't antithetical to God, but it's actually his instrument in some ways. This is really seen in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, this is after Jesus has, has come, lived, died, been raised again, ascended to the Father. And this is a letter to the Hebrews to remind them, this is how God's discipline works. Um, it goes like this, Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him, great start to a passage. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners. They eventually killed him. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? This is uh, from the book of Proverbs, which is uh, actually Solomon penned this to pass on to his child so that his child would be a wise child. And, and then we all realized, oh man, this is really, uh, God was working through Solomon in this way. Solomon wrote this, "'My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline.'" And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? That's God. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And can you go back one slide again? This part is so true when he compares the discipline of humans to the discipline of God the Father. When a, a father disciplines their, ch- their children, I have, I have three uh, daughters and a foster daughter. Um, you can't get around this, that part of it's for you. Okay, like I want you guys to behave at the Tutabella because this is gonna reflect really poorly on me. Like I have an image issue, so you need to obey, okay? It, but <laughs> the, the author of Hebrews is really bringing that out. He says, how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? because our fathers, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. In in, in essence, they're disciplining, my kids walk into the room on cue, perfect, as as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. God doesn't have an image issue. He's not disciplining uh, us so that we make him look better. He disciplines us for our good in order that we may um, grow essentially. Next slide in order that we may share in his holiness, which doesn't seem pleasant at the time, but painful and produces a crop of righteousness. Um, So friends, I don't know what sin God has allowed into your life, but, but he wants you to run to him with it. Don't let it oppress you. Don't let it isolate you. Run to God so that he might instruct you and mature you in this life. Now, um, like I said, this talk is gonna make us have more questions than we perhaps came in here with. I wanna just point to, to a few misunderstandings here, clear those up, and, and maybe we can clear some of the big ones out of the way so that you can go on to some other questions that you have, okay? Um, the first misunderstanding is that God is not in control of sin. God isn't in, in, like, he's out of control, like, he's like, he doesn't know, doesn't see it coming, and when it happens, it surprises him. But this is a misunderstanding, like we already pointed to, it's actually part and parcel to his redemptive plan in the world, to, to make a story of redemption, to tell us about who he is. Without sin, we don't get the full glimpse of who God is. Um, another misunderstanding, and so he was, he's in control of it, and, and he's not surprised by it, and, and he's more powerful than it, which is what Jesus showed on the cross, and by being raised from the grave. Uh, another misunderstanding goes like this. Well, if sin is then one of God, one of his instruments, we shouldn't really be held responsible for our sin. Uh, well, no, humans are still responsible for their sin in, in, in a few ways, actually. Um, one, we're responsible to God for our sin. Uh, Jesus actually made that very clear that we'll be held accountable for all, for all of our actions here on earth. We have the choice to do right and wrong all the time. And as Christians, it's in our power to actually pick the right one. We always fall short, of course. Where we frequently fall short. Um, and second, and this is a big one uh, that we need to keep in mind, is we're actually responsible to our local governments for the sin in our lives. That God has, uh, in his scriptures, this is in Romans uh, uh, 12 through 14, really, 13 actually, highlights this. Um, God sovereignly works through the nation states in the world to limit violence happening. And so it's not like if we sin and do something evil, like say, God forbid, uh, kill someone, that if we confess it to God that, and we experience his mercy and grace uh, for it, that we should be kind of opted out of the, the judgment system that, that he set up in the governments at B. Um, so they're, they're, that's definitely not true. God uses that and and we should submit to it is uh, uh, what an honest reading of the New Testament will always say. Okay, confession is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, quite frankly. Okay, and then three, a third misunderstanding goes like this. Um, All sickness and suffering in a Christian's life is because of their sin. Not the case, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, at one point in Jesus' ministry, uh, they come across, uh, him and his disciples, they come across a blind person. They ask Jesus, is this man blind because of his parents' sin, because he was born blind, or is it because of his own sin? Like, how does this work, Jesus? And Jesus soundly refutes the notion that all suffering is a result of sin. He says, neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And, and that can lead to a fourth misunderstanding that it's your job to help people discover if their suffering is the result of God's discipline for their sin. Um, There's this really great passage in the letter of James where he talks about how health and salvation are connected, actually. It's It's in chapter five. We don't have time to look at it together today, but it's really illuminating. In a religion where sinners are saved and sick people are healed, he actually flips that. And in his letter, what he says is, he says, pray for the sinner that they might be healed. Pray for the sick person, that they might be saved. Because he's talking about God's discipline and how these two can really be interchangeable. But do you know who he says it's their job to go pray for people who are sick and kind of ask them the questions of disciplines? If it's God's discipline, the elders of a church. The elders of a church. They're the ones that are to step in and try to help these people to decide where is this coming from? Is this just sickness or or is there some unconfessed sin in my life that I'm running from? Okay, so it's, it's not all of our jobs. <laughs> so, so if you find yourself wanting to say, you know what, I think this person's been really sick. I think, uh, and I know there's this sin in their life or they're probably linked. Yeah, that's, that's not your job, quite frankly. It's not your job, so don't do it. We don't want that misconception to reign anywhere. Um, and then the, the last misconception that I'll point to is a confusion surrounding what Jesus died on the cross for then? Because if Jesus died to save me from the punishment of sin, why do we still experience part of it now then? It's because Jesus did die to save you from the penalty of sin, but not the refinement piece. He died to save you from the oppression and the isolation that a holy God has on sin. He absorbed the wrath for those parts that we fear from God that we might still experience God's discipline that grows us into his likeness. So that's the part of sin, I guess you could say, logically, that Jesus died for you on the cross. Because this is what we must remember on the cross. Jesus became sin on the cross. Paul says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, he's perfect to be sin on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, in fact, this is what you can do with this psalm. You can read this as Jesus's words, becoming sin on the cross for all of us. So, I'm going to feel free to bow your head and listen to this. I'm going to close um, with this reading through this, and I want you to really envision, however you imagine best, closing your eyes, looking at the ceiling, whatever it takes to really envision Christ saying these words from the cross as he becomes sin for us. Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand is pressed down on me. There's no soundness in my body because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my inequities, they weren't Christ's, have flooded over my head. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm bent over and brought very low. All day long I go around in mornings for my insides are full of burning pain. And there's no soundness in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart races... My strength leaves me. Even the light of my eyes has faded. My loved ones and my friends, they stand back from my affliction. My relatives, they stand at a distance. Those who intend to kill me set traps. Those who want to harm me threaten to destroy me. They plot treachery all the day long. I'm like a deaf person I do not hear. I'm like a speechless person who does not open his mouth. I'm like a man who does not hear and has no arguments in his mouth. For I put my hope in you, Lord. You will answer me, my Lord and my God. For I said, don't let them rejoice over me, those who are arrogant towards me when I stumble. For I'm about to fall, and my pain is constantly with me. So I confess the iniquity of the world. I'm anxious because of that sin. But my enemies are vigorous and powerful. Many hate me for no reason. Those who repay evil for good, attacking me for pursuing good. Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, the Lord of my salvation."